warning for drugs and sexual activity. Hello and welcome to the Billy Sears Club. I'm Caleb Clark. I'm Eric Rigg. And I'm Maddie Campbell. And you're listening to the Billy Sears Club New Year's episode. So today we've got something a little bit special for you. Uh, we went through the top 100 songs of each of the year, decade by decade, going 1961, 71, 81, 91, 2001, 2011, and this year, and went and picked out a few songs that we thought were pretty nifty. So, uh, to get us started off, I believe we have Maddie Campbell. Why don't you tell us a little bit about our first little baby from all the way back in 1961 when JFK was president and the music was actually kind of bad, but and this was one of the good ones, Take 5. <laughs> Take 5 is one of the good ones. Take 5 is a jazz classic. And I say this as somebody who knows about five things about jazz as a genre. It's named actually because of its time signature. It's not in 4-4, four, four, which most songs are in. 1, 2, 3, 4, 2, 2, 3, 4. It's actually in 5-4. You don't really notice unless you're counting for it. But it's a song that flows very well despite being in an unusual time signature. Take 5 is just... it's. Such good, classy jazz. The saxophone line is super smooth. You've got the piano kind of keeping pace and beat with its little repeating. I don't want to call it an ostinato, but that's the only word I can think of. That da-dum, 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 da-dum. And it is rightfully considered one of the best jazz standards in the genre. Um, it's by the Dave Brubeck Quartet. It's their most famous piece, for sure, because I did not know who Dave Brubeck was before listening to Take 5. It's just it's just good, man. I'm not qualified enough to fully analyze it. All I can tell you is that if you haven't listened to it, you should. Yeah, definitely. It is definitely, yeah, they're like, I think it's the best-selling jazz song of all time. That yeah. would not surprise me, although I wouldn't be surprised if Coltrane's My Favorite Things were up there. It's, I think it's pretty up there. That was really successful. But yeah, this is definitely very good, very smooth, almost noirish in a way. It is very yeah. noir. I think that's because the saxophone generally has the melody line. Yeah. And also da, it's like... Da, 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 da. And also, like you say, the 5-4 gives it a, a little bit of this. And yeah, it's very too. suave. Yeah. It, it definitely fits in Panther theme, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of in there. I would, yeah, say, a... I would say Vince Guaraldi is a little bit more cozy than mm. this is, but that might be because I mostly think of the Charlie Brown soundtracks. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. It's a nice one. Also, there is a really good Indian, like Indian subcontinent music-inspired mm. cover of Take 5 that you can find mm. on YouTube that uses a, uh, a tabla, which is a percussion <laughs> instrument, to cover <laughs> both kind of the bass and piano lines at the same time. It's really cool. Not necessarily relevant to review the piece. I just want to put in a little plug because it's one of my favorite vari <laughs> variants of the song. <laughs> gotcha. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's much that y'all have, much that I can really add to the discussion that y'all haven't said already. There were a bunch of little aha moments as I was just listening through all of the years, just for this episode generally, where it was like, oh, I recognize this piece from somewhere, but I just had, I did not recognize the name. And this was probably the first of those. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's very nostalgic, and it was used as theme music for one of the areas in Knott's Berry Farm when I was a kid, so that's what oh, I associated it with. Oh. Yeah. Which one? I went to Knott's Berry Farm all the time as a kid. Oh, gosh, I want to say Camp Snoopy or Village, or like the Fiesta Village. It's kind of like that side of the park. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I know what you're talking about. I don't think I ever heard it, but I 100% believe you that it would have been yeah. background music. Yeah, the moment you mentioned a Charlie Brown soundtrack, I was like, oh, yeah, speaking of which. <laughs> nice. But yeah, I, I will admit, I think this was... I think this was the only year we looked at where jazz was even in the top 100 at all, which I think is a really interesting. It's so one of the things I tried to look at year by year was sort of what genres were prevalent because we do have some really interesting decade to decade transitions. And the 60s was the only time that any jazz really showed up at all. I think partially because we are coming off of the, and again, I don't know enough about jazz to say this with much confidence, but we are coming off of like the bebop era of the 40s and 50s where jazz is like this sort of counterculture thing and it's starting to transition more into being in the mainstream before falling back out of favor as we move into like funk and disco. It also helped that like rock and roll was present, but not like the, the defining ethos. Like it would be like by about the mid 60s. You know, like once once the Beatles came in, like you don't yeah. really get a lot of jazz. I mean, sixty one also had a lot of those like sort of doofy bubblegum pop sort of songs, which we'll talk about in the honorable mentions because there <laughs> yeah. were so many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're still kind of generally dealing with fifties cultural mores at this point though, which like oh, it, it kinda includes yeah, jazz and you know, less offensive pop thus far, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of instrumentals, though, and things that are less offensive or maybe more offensive, Eric, I think you got a little ditty for us. Oh, yeah, Calcutta. Okay, so we can talk about this one. It's the Calcutta. It's the most successful chart hit by American multi-instrumentalist and TV host. Well, I say multi-instrumentalist, but he was mostly the accordion. Lawrence Welk. Um, he featured it as an upbeat swing dance on his variety show, The Lawrence Welk Show, back in the 1960s. Um, it's actually a cover of a German pop song written in 1958 by German composer Heino Gaz, I think that's how you say it, um, which received English lyrics from a couple of American writers and it found some chart success in Europe under the title Calcutta. Um, but Welk's version is pretty much an instrumental. It combines the hallmarks of his music style with like a pretty harpsichord lead and accordion played prominently throughout with like an upbeat pop influenced sound and hand claps. Um, it it kind of matches the, the hallmarks of the so-called easy listening genre that was flooding the adult contemporary charts at the early point in the 60s. So kind of <laughs> what I was mentioning earlier. Um, and this song uh, is another one that kind of brings warm, fuzzy memories for me because my parents are old souls, boomers, mm -hmm. and their parents used to watch the Lawrence Welk show. So they, in turn, ended up having it on for me a lot when I was younger. And so I do remember <laughs> this. They did like a whole like energetic swing dance routine to it and i was just like mm -hmm. it, it, it's really something to behold you should look it up mm -hmm. but yeah how do you guys feel i really had no attachment to the lawrence welk show which was really interesting when we started discussing this song because i was very outnumbered immediately there was this like oh lawrence welk and i was like i know this name because my sister and i watched i love lucy growing up but i have no real strong feelings either way. It is a very 60s song. If I had to connect it to anything that I know a little bit better, it reminds me a little bit of Istanbul, not Constantinople. Not that they might be Giants cover, but the original version by the Canadian group The Four Lads in the late 50s. Again, that sort of like slightly Middle Eastern sort of vibe, but still being very identifiably late 50s, early 60s in tone. Yeah. 
I don't know. I it definitely did give off the German vibe. Like I was listening to it, and it's like this is very much like there were a lot of like little European crazes going on in the pop music of the early '60s. Like uh, Connie Francis had an entire series of albums that were just like Connie Francis sings Italian favorites, Irish favorites, Jewish favorites, more Italian favorites, and it's like they they were into continental Europe, is what I'm saying back in the day. And yeah, it's like it's very cheesy. It's very '60s TV show, you know. But, you know, just sort of like. Got some people doing some la la la's in the background, a little harpsichord, the accordion line. It's all kind of cheesy and silly, but it's nice. It's a nice song. Well, yeah, I mean, again, with the recency bias, <laughs> there's not like a whole ton of music that I recognize from this era, but you know, this was the one where I pointed out and it was like, oh, aha moment. I like this <laughs> song. So, I mean, I, I'll take what I can get. I listen to a lot more of like, 40s and 50s sort of big band swing, but I did recognize some names and songs on this list, a lot of which ended up in the honorable mentions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's about what I had to say on that. Yeah, yeah the me next too. one is one I think we all recognize, uh, Stand yeah. By Me by Benny King, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's me now. So yeah, Benny King... Uh, he had just gotten fired from the Drifters 2.0 because he was like, hey, Mr. Treadwell, can I get a, or whoever the boss's name, hey, Mr. Boss, can I get a raise? And the guy was like, screw you, you're fired. And so he went off and had a really successful early 60s soul career. And this is Stand By Me. It's a sort of reworking of Sam Cooke's spiritual Stand By Me Father. And it's just him pulling out the doo-wop chords and being like, I am swear to you, baby, I'll be with you. Just be with me. And it's a super popular song, like one of the best hung songs of the era. Like, I it mean, shows up yeah. all over the place. But yeah. My personal I can see connection. why it got popular. It's easy to mm -hmm. sing. It's very sweet. It's cute. Yeah, it's got the big the 50s emotions. Iconic. Yeah. It's got also, that big emotional I, swell. And that nice little sort of, like, doo-wop bass going on. That doo-doo-doom. Doom. Doo-doo-doom. Doo -doo yeah. It's almost like an early Motown. Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of that in there. Yeah, it's a it's a very yeah, like you said, sweet song, very you know heartfelt and earnest in a way that you know honestly doesn't shows up less and less as you go on through these lists. Woof. Woof. Yeah, I'm realizing that like a lot of the mu a lot of music early on, especially in this decade, it, it's like this there's a warm fuzzy feeling that you associate yeah. with it, and that's just not it. Kind of wanes the further and further you go as you get to yeah. that, especially as you get towards the '90s. Yeah, yeah, we're still in the we're still in the part of like twentieth century history where America's like, yeah, we beat World War One, and not, oh no, we're going to be annihilated in a nuclear war. So mm -hmm. I feel oh. like that's a factor here. Some of this may also just be selection bias because I think we all tend to gravitate towards discussing the songs that are a little bit gloomier. Mm, right. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't know. There have been like ten years of Duck and Cover at this point, but also like yeah, true. Duck and Cover had the cartoons. You know, it's like a turtle. Just going under the school desk and not, you know, war games and all the stuff. Yeah, there's there's a lot of like cultural nuance as we go through these lists, which I think is the all the, the other interesting aspect of it, honestly. The mm -hmm. idea of using these lists as a lens to understand what the world was like at that time. Yeah. For instance, because we're about six listen. decades out from anything that we remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's only friend? so much you can glean by looking on Wikipedia. Yeah. For instance, bull weevils. Very big concern. 
Apparently. <laughs> this one, we just, we agreed we had to talk about it because it is just so weird. So we picked the Bull Weevil song by Brooke Benton, uh, who was a soul and kind of R&B artist in the 60s. Uh, he had a big comeback in the early 70s and then kind of fell off. He was popular, but not in the way where most people remember him. Like, during his time, he was big, but he didn't really have the staying power. The song is about a family of bull weevils that are coming to a farm to eat the farmer out of house and home. And as far as I can tell, I don't even think it's, like, a metaphor for anything. I think it's just a song about bull weevils. And uh, the second we knew that that was on there, we had to bring it up because more people ought to know that this exists. <laughs> the title is just so, it stands out so much. And, like, what other decade in than, like, 1960s or 1950s would this be popular? Not a lot. Not I can get into that, but Eric, you go before I go into my rant. <laughs> no, that's just the remark I had. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's just really cute, and I I also found it really catchy. Like it's very hummable that refrain. Um, you gotta have production a on it. Production on it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. My big thing on this is like. Even for the trends of the time, it was really weird because there were a ton of novelty songs like, you know, Hello Mudda, Hello Fada, The Monster Mash. And like there was like sort of a subgenre of historical songs. Like uh, there was one about General Custer and all his men getting killed. Screw you, Custer. And also one about like the Battle of 18, like Battle of New Orleans. Like these were actual pop songs, but they were more like jokes with punchlines and silly voices. And this just was sort of like a more like a just so story of the how bull weevils came in and like ate all the cotton in the south like it doesn't even get to the part where like and then george washington carver taught people how to use peanuts like it doesn't have a punchline it's just like bull weevils say over and over again we're going to eat your entire life <laughs> sustaining career screw yeah. you farmer <laughs> When I first found it, I thought it was going to be a cover of some Depression-era song, but as far as I can tell, no. <laughs> yeah. Even Gucci Gucci Give Me Your Comb had more understanding of comedy than this, if it's supposed to be a comedy song, because it's like... I, I don't think it is supposed to be a comedy song, is the thing. I don't think... It doesn't sound like it's meant to be funny. Yeah, but like, what else can you take it as? It's, it's a bull weevil talking to people in a pop song. I mean, that's your perspective from 2021, though. Maybe people in 1961 just talked about bull weevils casually, and that was just a normal you know, household conversation. That's what we have I, our pop I feel like, about. I mean, my parents were born in the late 60s, but I feel like they would have remembered that at some point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah my dad would, at least. Yeah. Yeah, it was it's a very matter-of-fact... I don't know. It's it's really cool to have this as a hit song. Yeah. But yeah, and honestly, movie? even in the sorry. 80s, sorry, uh, even in the 80s, you don't get anything, in my opinion at least, that reaches this level of sheer bizarre. Well, I think you get bizarre, but it usually doesn't take itself this casually or seriously, you know? It's yeah, like... 80s bizarre is aware that it's bizarre. It's trying mm. to be. This is just like, well, weevils talk sometimes. Blues. <laughs> well, yeah, that's all I got. Shall we do honorable mentions for the 60s? Sounds yeah. like it. All right. So here's the big list of ones that we thought were cool but didn't have time to do a full sentence on. 
Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor on the Bedpost Overnight by Lonnie Donegan? Hello, Mary Lou by Ricky Nelson. Last Night by the Marquis. Let's Twist Again by Chubby Checker because he already had the biggest hit of all time with the twist, so why not try it again? Uh, Mother-in-Law by Ernie K. Doe. Runaround Sue by Dion. And yeah, now it's time for the ones that we wanted to talk a little bit about. Go ahead, guys. Uh, I'll go first because mine was technically last on the list of honorable mentions and I moved it up here last minute, uh, which is Who Put the Bomp in the Bomp 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 by Barry Mann? And the reason I chose this one is it's kind of funny that we're bringing it up right after Bull Weevil, actually, because this is an actual comedy song meant to parody the nonsense lyrics of bubblegum pop in the early 60s. And as somebody who loves weird nonsense lyrics, I appreciate that this song is making fun of them as far back as 1961. It's an entire song just making fun. It's like, ah, yes, this is the song that played when my girl fell in love with me. And then the lyrics are just nonsense scat syllables. <laughs> There's even a bridge where it's like, darling, orangutan, tang, 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 forever. <laughs> it's just intentionally very goofy and overwrought. And also just the song, the melody itself is pretty catchy. And you even get that fun little doo-wop sort of falsetto in the last yeah. chorus where somebody's going like, wee! Beach Boy style. Yeah. It's fun. Nice. Yeah. Okay. What you got, Eric? Um, I just had one, and and I totally agree. I really love the Who Put the Bump. Laughed out loud with that one. But um, mine was More Money for You and Me by this acapella group called The Four Preps. And I don't know too much about them, but this one just made me laugh, too. It's a song basically about just, like, banishing their rival groups. And, you know, I... It, there, there's a lot of morbid humor going around. It's, it's a lot of fun. I'm not sure mm. if there's too much I could say about it, but it's fun. Yeah, and then I had a couple honorable mentions. One was Apache, the Jorgen Ingman version, which is of the ones that are generally around, you know, as opposed to like, there was one that came before it, and then the Incredible Bongo Band and Sugar Hill Gang took, both took efforts out. That were a lot better, but this is sort of, fun as a throwback to like instrumental cowboy music getting onto the charts and like it's got a sort of cool stripped down aesthetic and then the other one is hit the road jack by ray charles which is just a lovely song with a great beat some good saxophone and the backup singers just sort of being like get out of my house ray charles and ray charles just sort of like spitting back at them and it's just a nice time yeah hit the road jack also has a really good casey reinhardt cover that one's fun mm -hmm. nice so next up on the list, it's 1971, uh, the Vietnam War is pretty bad, and uh, and also Maddie had some fun facts about other things that were going on besides oh. the Vietnam War. Yeah, 1971, weirdly formative year for American culture, as I've discovered this year, because so many things are celebrating their 50th anniversary, including but not limited to Starbucks, which was founded as a coffee bean distributor in Seattle in 1971. Disney World, which is turning 50 this year, and the Shamrock Shake at McDonald's. Of those three, I really wish the Shamrock Shake hadn't made it this long, quite frankly, <laughs> but I feel like all of them have been weirdly influential on American culture in their own capacity, and if nothing else, the Shamrock Shake tastes like the early 70s. Lies and slander. The Shamrock Shake is magnificent, but go on. Look, if I want to consume something from that era that's neon green, I'll take lime jello. Fair enough. And speaking of lime jello, something else that was really shaky, Marvin Gaye's personal life. We won't get into it, but he was having a terrible time right around 1970. And also the country was going through pretty turbulent times, but uh, and which reflected in the music because, of course, you know, at Woodstock, everything suddenly got 
it was able to be more political and experimental, but Motown Records decided, nah, we just want to keep making, you know, three-minute silly love songs. And Marvin Gaye kind of was wanting to do his own thing, so he was like, look, give me creative control or I'm leaving Motown. And so they eventually capitulated, but were really nervous because they were listening to him while he was recording, and he was making this sort of, like, political soft jazz album, and they was like, this is not going to sell. And then it sold really well and became one of the most acclaimed albums in all of music history. And uh, this is the lead single from that, What's Going On, from What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. And it pretty much sets up the entire album, you know, just this lovely sort of jazzy, soulful beat as Marvin just sort of begs to understand what anything that's happening around him in the world is. It's just like, oh, it, it gets you. It's just like, you feel uplifted by the beat and by Marvin singing, but you're also kind of with there with them, like, you know, just wishing the chaos would, you know, if not stop, at least, you know, mean something. Yeah, yeah unsurprisingly, very... there are a lot of protest songs in 1971. What's going on is one of the more subdued, quite frankly. It kind of reminded me a little bit, and I, just not in a bad way, but a little bit of what um, Tracy Chapman kind of had going on at the beginning of her career with the... Um, mm -hmm just like more subdued folk pop sound and just the lyrics about just the general ly existential lyrics about injustice in the world, which, you know, give you, I guess, like a fuzzy feeling, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm, I appreciate this song a lot. You know, it's, it has a nice groove that gets you where you need to be. It's not insincere. Um, yeah, I, I can't I say that I encountered it before this though. How big of a hit was it? Really? Yeah. I mean, I knew Marvin Gaye, but... Well, yeah, not this song. Yeah, no, this is a really good album. Like, the entire thing kind of sounds I'm like surprised. this, but really good. See, this is yeah, why you need line... to put us on a Best of Marvin Gaye playlist. <laughs> yeah, the line, too many... It, I suppose, saying it out loud, it sounds a little cliche, but too many children dying, too many mothers crying, that one hits home. <laughs> Especially since we're, what, how many years out from the end of the Vietnam War? Uh, 47 or so. Well over 40, definitely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Sobering. Eddie, make us happy again. <laughs> yeah, I decided to take the one of the cheerier songs on this list, um, which is John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads, which I almost feel needs no introduction. I, I feel like I've taken the easy song here. <laughs> um, just Take Me Home Country Roads is a song about West Virginia native John Denver singing about the place he is from and how much he loves it and how much he wants to return to it. And it's just it's just good. It is road trip music in the best way possible. It is best enjoyed while driving with friends, singing along. Whenever I went on a trip at the Hillsdale Theater Department, I always made sure this song was playing when we made it back to Hillsdale County, if I could control it. It's just, <laughs> it's recall. soothing. It's a very good John Denver. His, it's just, it is quintessential John Denver. You, you have to listen to it at some point if you haven't heard it already. If for no other reason, then you need to know the sheer joy that is singing along to the chorus with a car full of your friends. I mean, the, the enthusiasm about it is dampened a little when your mom starts singing it on a family road trip. But I, I definitely would agree with all of that, though. Uh, it's an iconic song. 
Oh yeah, every time that bass line comes in, you're like, yes. <laughs> yes. Doom da ba doom da ba doom. And I'm not even the John Denver fan of the three of us, which isn't to say that I don't. I don't. It's not that I don't like John Denver. I just know one of us grew up with him. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's got some tunes, all right. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's just a really nice, comforting song. It is definitely that that vibe, you know, nearly at the end of a road trip, and just John Denver's voice, like like kind of what we said with Marvin Gaye. He's very earnest and warm with it. He's getting to be happy, so it's like you know, you just sort of that. Church that warmth and that um sincerity while it still lasts while that's yeah. still getting to the top of the charts yeah and also it's nice nice some of the imagery you know like the when the second verse where it's like almost heaven you really feel that you know like that's just a good line yeah makes me actually want to visit west virginia <laughs> no offense west virginians it's a nice part of the country at least as far as the views go i've driven through it because my sister goes to college in south carolina Nice. And then on the opposite end yeah. of the triangle, I guess we've created at this point, we have the British Invasion and 70s Rock. So uh, do you want to take Won't Get Fooled again? Oh, yeah. Oh, I've, I've been fooled too many times to ask people to, do, to tell people I won't get fooled again. But yeah, The Who started off as mod rockers, and then by the end of the 60s, they were really into concept albums. Uh, they had just made Tommy... And Peter Townsend was like, all right, guys, we're going to make another concept album. But the other guys were like, we don't get this concept. So Peter Townsend had a mental breakdown and they decided to take the pieces of the concept album and just make a regular album. And it became Who's Next, which is pretty up there in terms of Who albums. And this is their song, Won't Get Fooled Again, which is sort of this eight-minute proto-arena prog, you know, sort of born like the line of, like, Kansas than King Crimson. But, uh... Just them slamming on the drums and the guitars and yelling about how, you know, revolutions are unpredictable and sometimes they become as totalitarian as the regimes they replace. And also, fun fact, you know how there's that organ riff that's going throughout? That is actually a religiously inspired thing. You see, Peter Townsend was a follower of a gentleman named Meher, yeah, Meher Baba, I believe. And he had lots of teachings that I don't entirely understand, but one of them was like, you could make a universal chord to bring enlightenment to band and audience. And so Peter Townsend just figured out the modulations for a bunch of different things like heartbeats and whatnot, and then hooked them up into a computer and then hooked that up into a into an organ and then made that sort of arpeggio. Well, it wouldn't be the 1970s without at least one weird cult, so this tracks. It's not a cult! Maybe it's a cult. I don't know too much, but it seemed nice. Of yeah, the two, I... like, revolution-themed songs here in the playlist, I think this is the more honest one, so I think I rocked out to it a little harder. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a groove. Um, I think the single version that was popular as a hit on the radio was actually just three and a half minutes. They cut it off after that. Um, second <laughs> verse. The first but... time the song ends. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I had no idea this song was eight minutes and 31 seconds. I was not prepared. <laughs> Right, I was listening. It just keeps going. I was like, "Is it done yet?" Oh, oh, and then yeah, I looked well, up. Early prog. Right. That's just prog rock for you. You can't, you can't go straight from who put the bomb into rush. You gotta have mm. a, you gotta have a transitional phase. 
I will say I do love that closing line of meet the new boss, same as the old boss. This is a yeah. very cynical song. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure, everybody's beards are longer now, but it's still the same conflict and it's going to end the same way. And it's yeah. like, youch, Pete, you okay? I mean, you're not wrong, but aren't you okay? No! I'll be honest, I mostly knew this one from, like, the meme potential or rather the mimetic treatment it got, because I'm pretty sure it got used in Miami Vice. Like, whenever somebody puts on the sunglasses, that, yeah, at the end. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a good song. I will, I will admit, yeah, the eight-minute version does kind of wear, because other than letting the organ go in uninterrupted and a few great licks from uh, uh, Moon, the drummer, like, it, it doesn't really, you know, change up all that much. Oh, it does get a little bit much over the full eight minutes, but you know. It's a still 70s rock song over. overstaying its welcome? Hardly. <laughs> Next, fun fact, they were probably on cocaine. Yeah, that tracks. It was the 70s. So <laughs> I, I don't know their drug habits, but I'm just guessing because like... Okay, I feel like... Over... <laughs> okay, this makes the Miami Vice connection even more ironic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just guessing because one of Moon's favorite habits was putting cherry bombs into toilets. So, like, he wasn't a clean and sober boy. Yeah, yeah, that would track. We haven't gotten into the don't do drugs ethos of the mid-80s quite yet, so... Yeah, we're about 15 years out from Reagan. Mm. Unfortunately, what we do have is boating. Yeah, why don't we finish the 1971 off with... A pretty light mood. Um, we have Proud Mary by Ike and Tina Turner, which is a cover of a 1969 hit by Creed's Clearwater Revival, which did all right for itself on the charts and had a twingy southern blues rock sound as opposed to like the um, up-tempo R&B jam that we got here. Ike Turner actually didn't like the CCR version quite as much. He preferred a version by R&B megagroup The Checkmates Limited, and his and Tina's version prominently samples the horn riff and a few other musical elements from that version, like that refrain, we're up, do, 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 from that. So that comes from that. Um, so Ike and Tina's version ends up at f number four on the Hot 100 and number 55 on these year-end charts. So it's a pretty big hit for them. And it's continued to be a signature song for Tina and essential for her and her live performances solo. Um, she re-recorded it for a, the 1993 biopic of her life, What's Love Got to Do With It, which is a decent version of the song in its own right. And it was issued as a promotional single. So, yeah, this one is just a lot of fun and very singable. Yeah. yeah. It's a really recognizable melody and the story about, you know, leaving a working class job in the city to just go adventure. It's quite the theme. I, I love it. Yeah. Really fun to spare. I will, I will admit, Credence probably communicates more of the, you know, Living on a boat feel a little bit than I can tune up, but what they do have is a great sense of performance because, you know, it has the start where it's just Ike sort of singing in the background and then Tina telling us how it's not going to be nice and easy, it's going to be nice and hard, and how it's going to, you know, slam us in the second half, and then it starts with that sort of, yeah, the easygoing intro, and then suddenly the horns, and it's all double time. And it's just Yeah, if you don't switch. get hyped when those horns come in, I don't know what to tell you, man. <laughs> Yeah, I do love the dramatic build, and it's like one of the best things about it. 
Um, yeah, I grew a... up listening to this one, and I have very fond memories of me and my sister trying to nail the river do, 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 in the back of the car. <laughs> Aww. There's this video of these um, three men in heels, which was very viral. On um, They were like on finalists on Britain's Got Talent or something. They were doing a very gay medley of a bunch of gay songs, and promise, we'll get to those. We're c coming up on those, but um, <laughs> it, this was like one of them, and they were just doing this insane choreography. Um, Giannis Marshall is the guy's name, so I can't recommend that, but that's my first exposure. I wish I grew up listening to this one. Uh, yeah, I know, it's, it's super danceable. <laughs> It's meant to be danceable. Yeah, you cut a rug. <laughs> and it's also generally been covered a ton outside of the aforementioned. Um, Elvis frequently was known for frequently performing the song, and Leonard Nimoy, of all people, recorded a version that sounds pretty much as you'd expect, you know, like a middle-aged white guy um, doing Proud Mary with as much gusto as he can muster, and... It sounds as you'd expect, and I don't mean that as a compliment or a diss to Mr. Spock. You know, he gives it the old college try. Yeah. Does it beat, does it beat Bilbo Baggins, though? Mm, probably not. Hmm. Well, I mean, you can't really beat that with a stick. No. It's part of his, uh, his album of folk and country hit covers, The New World of Leonard Nimoy. So if you are interested, try checking that out. That is an amazing album title. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Are you comfortable for our honorable mentions here? Sure, yeah. Yep, and go ahead and do the big old list of the, some of them. Uh, Ain't No Sunshine by Bill Weathers. I Just Want to Celebrate by Rare Earth. If I Were Your Woman by Gladys Knight and the Pips. It's Too Late by Carol King. Knock Three Times by Tony Orlando and the Don. Uh, Mama's Pearl by Jackson 5. The Night They Drove Dixie Down by Joan Bay Hayes. Riders on the Storm by The Doors. Signs by Five Man Electrical Band. Out of Being Alone by Al Green. And Wedding Song There Is Love by Paul Stuckey. And, uh, let's see. Who wants to go first? On... I'm like 95% sure it's Joan Baez. Baez, thank um, you. Yeah, no problem. Um... Yeah, I mean, I just had one that wasn't mentioned. I feel the earth move, the Carol King. That's probably, yeah, it's one of my favorites. Oh, classic. Ones. Yes. Um, have you guys seen that video of the American Idol contestant who was auditioning? And she was probably, probably not a real contestant, but her name's Mary Roach. She does like <laughs> a really terrible cover of this song and then just gets yeah. very dramatic when she's rejected. Yeah, that's, I, I just had to mention that. <laughs> total yeah. meme, like total iconic 2010s meme gotcha yeah also go check out the full episode that we did on tapestry uh, a little while back with my dad and we also talked about steve winwood nice 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 yeah i think i've listened yeah so um, any other honorable I'll mentions go, guys oh yeah, yeah, yeah i'll go next with mine um before i talk about my actual honorable mention i would like to put in a little trivium uh wedding song was one of my other honorable mentions um i mostly threw it in because i actually got to sing it when my grandfather got married so it's a very personal song for me it is a very cheesy wedding song and i had the boring alto line but it was worth it very um, were you part of a group or it was me and my sister very nice. Um, my actual honorable mention is Me and Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin because Janis Joplin is not, is not my girl in the way that Mark Mothersbaugh is my boy, and we'll get to that in just a second. 
But I do love Janis Joplin, and I really like Me and Bobby McGee as a song. And the more I listen to it as an adult, the more I appreciate it. And I just, Janice had such a unique sound. She's like, it's sort of, the fact that it's here, sort of like the last vestige of Woodstock. It's just, I'm glad it's on here. And it's a very good sort of wail of a song. Whale in the sense of like a holler, not in the sense of like the aquatic <laughs> mammal. Sorry, <laughs> phonetics are weird. <laughs> and I just, I'm glad she made it onto the Hot 100. I'm glad we get to talk about her. I should do an episode on her sometime. She's cool. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah. Then I had a few picks. Uh, one was Superstar by Murray Head. Uh, this is one of the first versions of Andrew Lloyd Webber's good musical, Jesus Christ Superstar. And it's not it's not quite up to the, uh, I believe Carl Anderson is the one who had it in the filmed on location version, which is my personal favorite. But Murray does pretty good as a Judas. Uh, we have My Sweet Lord, which is a really nice sort of like, you know, dreamy folk pop rock song that suddenly is like, he gets, he's a Harry Krishna. And that's sort of a fun little thing as it, you know, just goes all mantric. And then Mr. Bojangles, which is, it's super cheesy, but I loved it as a kid. And it's a nice tribute to a guy who was apparently a huge tap dancer and also did the, the movies with Shirley Temple. But yeah. And now enough 70s warmth. It's time for the 80s. Your favorite <laughs> decade, Caleb. It's not. <laughs> That's not well, it. Good, good. You can balance me out because my parents grew up on 80s alt, so I've been brainwashed to love the 80s so much. Yes, or at least the music. Um, my, like, my uncle went to Depeche Mode concerts. My dad went to an Oingo Boingo Halloween concert when he was a freshman in college. Like, my cred runs deep, guys. Um, so my pick immediately upon seeing it was... I if, if we could put screenshots in a podcast, I would. Because the second I saw Whip It was on there, I insisted we talk about it. Because Devo has been one of my favorite groups literally since I was in middle school. So half my life. Uh, and Whip It is their most, is their highest charting song. It's one of their most iconic songs. It's considered one of the tracks of 80s alt. It's just emblematic of so many things and I love it so much. It is weird and wacky in all the ways that Devo is because Devo is an 80s alt group, kind of that new wave sort of twitchy electronic vibe. They got started in Akron, Ohio, which I think explains a mm. lot. Okay. Um, and Whip It was actually, Whip It was from their second album and it actually wasn't supposed to be the lead single. The lead single was Girl You Want, which did not perform as well as they expected. And then this DJ in the South started playing Whip It and they actually had to stop their tour and reschedule it because after Whip It got big, all their concerts started selling out and they had to stop and find bigger, bigger venues. So this song just was absolutely meteoric, which is interesting because it actually shifted their trajectory. Uh, they actually wrote one of their later singles, Through Being Cool, in response to Whip It making them more of a mainstream act, even though Devo's aesthetic was very new wave and almost punk. Like, there's a lot of countercultural elements to Devo. As a matter of fact, depending on who you ask, Whip It itself is meant to be a motivational speech for Jimmy Carter to beat Reagan in the election. <laughs> In 1981, oh. It's also, depend it's also meant to be a satire of how the American approach to problem solving is to usually just brute force your thing into submission. Uh, a lot of people think it's about uh, 
extracurricular activities, shall we say. Um, it's not, but eventually Devo got tired of correcting people on that and decided to lean into it, which is why the music video, which is one of the first music videos on MTV to get really, really big, because this is in like the Talking Heads uh, once in a lifetime era where nobody knew how music videos worked. Um, it does lean into that because I think they kind of figured they had to as well stick with it. Just... Devo is cool. Mark Mothersbaugh is cool. I'm glad he's joined the Danny Elfman route of doing soundtracks, and I really like Whip It. And one of these days, we will talk about New Wave in a full episode, because as you can tell, I have a lot of thoughts. So, the, yeah, there's like a lot of different things that the that you mentioned the song was about, and I Yeah, the song has its own Wikipedia page. Right. I, I can't say I'm familiar with a ton of that stuff, but like, it's, it is generally a motivation song, so... It's kind of it's also kind of not Devo really likes nonsense lyrics that also aren't the nonsense lyrics. They're so absurd and they're just absurd in the right way, you know. They just Absolutely, really Absolutely, yeah. Their whole they, the reason they got their name is from like this idea that people are de-evolving Devo. Mm. Which is why mm. another one of their big signals includes their brain are we not men. We are Devo. Huh. So there's also there's also as we pointed out that cynicism element is growing from the 60s to now because now you have people like the protests of the 70s didn't work nuclear annihilation is hovering over everybody's head and nobody really knows what to do anymore this is so one of those songs let's play that's made... weird hats about it right this is one of those songs that's definitely made marginally less cool by my parents wholeheartedly singing along to it but only marginally this song rocks and Oh, it yeah. absolutely rocks. It actually, it was popular enough during its heyday to get parodied on The Simpsons. Wow. <laughs> Simpsons predicted everything. <laughs> I don't know if that applies here. You know, this is definitely really, I mean, there is definitely that, you know, snark about it, you know, with just the way the vocals go, they switching between, you know, just like, na 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 and then the very dopey, doo yeah, it's just like, you know, they're they're just kind of joking around, but like, it's just so very tight and so many little runs and hooks in there. And it's just, it's still just a super fun song, even though it's kind of actively mocking you about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a satire of motivational cliches. And also, I very much get it confused with Dare to be Stupid by Weird Al. It happens. Honestly, that's a compliment to both. <laughs> Well, while we're on extremely self-motivating songs of the 80s, um, Diana Ross really rocked us out with her what? second single from her 10th album, Diana. It was written by Chic co-founders Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards. So, yeah, this, it, it's a really great song. The song uh, was written by Rodgers and Edwards as a gay anthem after they'd seen several Diana impersonators at a nightclub. And Nile Rodgers actually made a TikTok explaining how the song came to be, but it, he figured it would be great for her career to do that. And at the time, Diana was also leaving her current management at Motown. The song was a middle finger to Barry Gordy. Um, so allegedly, though, Diana had no idea what coming out meant at the time in, um, oh, no. in queer lingo. And she was a little upset with Nile Rodgers for quote, trying to ruin her career at first when she found out. She was a little bit shocked. It was the 80s after all. She didn't want to, like, be a transgressive type. But but she's, she's since definitely come around on it. It's one of her signature songs. Um, she performs it 
first at pretty much all of her live concerts since 1980. And yeah, it's just one of those cool, groovy 80s disco songs, um, post-disco songs, really. Um, you got a classic Nile Rodgers guitar groove. There's a trombone solo performed by yeah. Rodgers' neighbor, um, his producer and former session player, Mako Monardo, I think is his name. No, none of these musicians were actually credited on the album cover at first because of the aforementioned drama with Diana, but this was fixed with reissues of the album once things were sorted out. So the, uh, this song has been like everywhere. Um, sampled in a ton of other songs, um, and there's all kinds of pop culture references to it, like Mo Money, Mo Problems is probably the biggest one that comes to mind. But yeah, big. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> I won't lie, I didn't realize it was technically post-disco until you said that, because it is such peak disco in its sound that I forgot we were in the early 80s. Right, like, I realized that as I was saying it, too. I was like, this isn't really disco, actually. It's kind of like a groovy pastiche. Also, I was wondering about the coming out thing, so thank you for clarifying that, because I kind of figured it was a reference to, like, a debutante ball, because that's the other way that the term is used, and I think that's actually where it was originally taken to be made gay slang, but don't quote me on that. I do not live in the South. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of <laughs> no, the metaphor I figured yeah. she was going for, and she just didn't realize the implications, but no, no, I got it backwards. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. It's all of those different meanings wrapped up, and, sh and also her departing Motown and her struggles with her management, too. Yeah, and on that note, good for her. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, we've got two decades in a row that were like, ah, Motown. Go away. At least the label. Label Motown. Yeah, Motown is a genre good. Motown is a label, not so much. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely a really fun song. Well, I, I will admit, not, for me personally, 95% of it is definitely all the little licks and the, the horns going everywhere. And like how the first minute or so is literally just sort of like warm up noises. It's just, you know, it's just got a very good vibe to it. You know, you can dance to it, you can stretch your stuff. It's really nice. Yeah, it's got. It's got the tone and the energy of the opening credits of a movie in a good way. Yeah. I'm really happy. Like, this movie. is the this is the plucky getting ready for your Sex in the City protagonist man about town sort of moment. Yeah, I would I would say personally on the post disco versus disco thing, I think it's pretty disco. This is at least my personal interpretation. When you're getting into post disco, that's more of the stuff with like synthesizers, like um. Mm. Like, you know, how Madonna or, uh, and such, you know, that's a lot more, you know, to the drum machines and keyboards as opposed to actual instruments. That's my personal distinction. I don't know how well that holds up. I two cents. Right. Right. It has, it has a genuine disco sound. I definitely agree with that. It's just, it seems like we're moving out of that era now. Yeah. And I don't necessarily see, yeah. So I, sorry, go ahead. My train of thought crashed. Because, <laughs> yeah, by this point, they're, like, setting disco records on fire and, like... Yeah, disco was... Gotta make room for New Wave. And speaking of New Wave, I'm not gonna talk about New Wave. I'm gonna talk about country. Except I'm not actually talking about country. I'm talking about country artists going pop. And by that, I mean Dolly Parton, 9 to 5. At this point, Dolly has been, you know, huge songwriter, has managed to establish herself in a country career for the last decade or so but really wants to break through into the mainstream and manages to do so with the on the Jane Fonda film, 9 to 5, where Jane Fonda, uh, I forget the one lady's name, I think Lily Tomlin, 
And Dolly Parton, apparently, I haven't watched the movie, but from what I can tell, they seem to pull an office space on their boss. Very jaunty song with, you know, the big piano line and the acrylic nails as typewriter percussion as Dolly just sort of walks you through getting ready in the morning as a person who works at an office building and how the bosses are exploiting you for your labor so that they can profit and you'll never get any reward for it. And, you know, actually, we should cease those means of production. Comrade Dolly! (laughs) This to me, yeah, like this to me uh, is country pop done tastefully and perfectly and respectfully it's it's super based i love it um i don't even know if it's comrade right. dolly i don't even know if you can call it like country pop at this point like they're the, rhin, the cow, rhinestone cowboy is completely made out of rhinestones at this point like you could play this in like elvis could play this in vegas and there would be no difference but, but yeah look all i'll say is i have had some rough mornings working in education and there is something very cathartic about listening to dolly parton as you're trying to rush out the door to school on time. What a way to make a living indeed. (laughs) Honestly, it's comforting in a way. Like, Dolly gets it. Yeah. And she understands the grind and she doesn't let herself get out of touch. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. She's a national treasurer. She's such a nice lady. I I feel like Dolly Parton was not appreciated enough in her heyday. And it's only now I mean, she's still around. I'm not saying that her career is yeah. over by any stretch of the imagination. But there has been this sort of Dolly Parton renaissance, which I'm very much here for. Yeah. That's, and that's a big part of what makes 9 to 5 work so well, because, like, uh, you know, it could be, you know, just... Like, it, it's very earnest. Yeah. But it's also got a realistic grasp on, you know, hey, this job kind of stinks. But, you know, we will find a way, or at least at the very much... I'm stronger than this. As opposed to, there are a lot of songs that are like motivational things that I just don't have any realistic view of anything and that just defeats the purpose, but this one works. Don't you know they're talking about a revolution? Sounds like a whisper. <laughs> don't you mean whisper? See, I was, I was going to be like, on a scale from Mark Mothersbaugh to Dolly Parton, how sincere are you in your motivational speech? <laughs> I'm going to say AJR. Ugh. Oof. Am I Fair Am enough. I, I don't know! But what I do know is... Okay, I'm an AJR fan. I don't girl. think they know either. And now, it's time for everyone's favorite about really wanting to get with your best friend's girl. Let's talk about Rex Springfield and that lovely little ditty, Jesse's Girl. All right, I can take point on this one. Um, the funny thing for me about Jesse's Girl is that I always confuse it with Stacy's mom if I'm trying to remember which one is which. And I think this is because this is sort of my grand unified theory of pop music. Jenny 8675309 and Jesse's Girl and Stacy's mom are all the same woman at different points in their life. Uh, but uh, cartoon conspiracy theories, not cartoons, my word, pop music conspiracy <laughs> theories aside, <laughs> um, Jesse's Girl is from an Australian performer named Rick Springfield. It was his only number one hit on the American charts, and it was one of the slowest climbs to number one after releasing in the United States. Um, it was very mm. popular in his native Australia, 
And it was number five of the entire 1981 list in America by Billboard. Um, the song itself is actually based on a real incident Rick Springfield experienced with two of his friends. He was in a stained glass making class with his friend Gary and Gary's girlfriend. And Gary's girlfriend, whose name he does not remember, ironically enough, was incredibly attractive. And so he wrote a whole song about the jealousy he felt, um, changing the name of his friend, both for anonymity reasons. And also, let's be real, Gary's girl would not have done quite as well. Yeah. Gary's just not a I mean, that unfortunately, you, Gary Oldman. I always keep forgetting that Jesse is the guy in the song. That's um, being envied. <laughs> <laughs> well, it girl. actually is spelled. It actually is spelled with an I E. So even though um, the Jesse in the song is male, it is the more feminine spelling. According to Wikipedia, he chose Jesse because he was wearing the friend was wearing a T-shirt with the name of football player Ron Jesse on it. So it's not even the guy's first name. <laughs> Wild. This makes me feel way worse. For all the guys named Jesse who have had to hear this song sung by well-meaning groomsmen at their wedding. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, my my. Prof I had a professor in college use this song to illustrate the concept of mimetic desire as, and um, it it was. It, we were in a Dostoevsky seminar, and it had something to. It, I think it was like the Underground Man, but like, and I just I didn't fully understand the concept at the time, but I feel like we have a philosophy major here who could explain it. <laughs> that would be me. I read the theory, so you don't have to. Um, yeah, mimetic desire is this idea. Yeah, mimetic desire is the idea that you don't want something because it is wantable. You want something because you see other people want it. It's sort of like the desire version of the idea that things only are worth as much money as people are willing to pay for them. Um, if you've ever seen like kids play on the playground and one of them isn't playing with a toy, and then another one picks up the toy and starts playing with it. And the first kid suddenly wants that toy because somebody else is using it. That's mimetic desire. They don't want the toy because the toy is there. They want the toy because someone else has it. And so the idea is that Jessie's girl is not desirable because she is inherently so. She's desirable because she belongs to Jessie and not to me, which is really messed up now that I'm saying it out loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the singer in the song is, is kind of whiny. <laughs> it's oh, it just, absolutely you know, just, is. Like, he's probably just touching with a buddy, I know it. And it's like, yeah, she's his girlfriend. Duh. But it's also yeah. just so catchy and upbeat. You kind of just go like, yeah. All oh, the, yeah, no, that. Where can I find a woman like that? It's just so good. Um, I will say, now that I'm thinking about it, there are two things that I can point out. The first is that I feel like if you're going to do the whiny, obsessive thinking Mr. Brightside does it way better, but Mr. Brightside's also about getting cheated on, so of course it's more emotionally intense. <laughs> right, this is just like the incel pining from the corner, so it's not quite as compelling, the angle that Rick Springfield has. I, will also, I guess you don't that... have to be compelling for every single 80s rock banger. It, it's not exactly known as a time of introspection in the old rockin' and rollin'. Oh, well, we know true. how you feel about the 80s, Caleb. <laughs> Yuppies. <laughs> I will also point out, though, the interesting thing, if you look at how it's being described, it's never really anything about the girl. It's that she's interacting with Jesse. And so I would like to ask the class, are we 
are we sure the singer's not just into Jesse? You know, that is one of the good things about the 80s, accidental homoeroticism. Oh, I'm saying, well, I guess given the real-life circumstances, in this case, it would be accidental, but... Especially considering this is the early 80s. But yeah. Good song. Oh, absolutely. Can't say that I dislike it. <laughs> this, is, this is a song that is on every single song's Get White People Turnt playlist, and that is for a reason. <laughs> Yes, this and 9 to 5, truly. The 80s were a good time yeah. for those type of songs. And I think our honorable mentions contain quite a few more of them if we would like to transition there. Totally. Yeah. All right. Uh, I didn't have too many particular ones, but just sort of the general ones that we had were Celebration by Cool and the Gang, Hit Me With Your Best Shot by Pat Benatar, Stop Dragging My Heart Around by Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty, and You Make Mad Dreams by Hall and & Oates. And uh, you guys had a couple of particular ones? Well, I've done a lot um, of the talking, so maybe, Eric, you should go first. <laughs> sure. Um, I just had a couple that I wanted to discuss. Um, uh, the Winner Takes It All by ABBA. I just am a huge ABBA stan, generally. Um, I just think they deserve to mention. I think their melodies are beautiful. I think they have a really great sense of lyricism. It's, it's just a really iconic song. And then also Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes, which is like one of those really soft, uh, just memorable 80s songs. And I don't know, neither of you really mentioned it, but I don't know if anyone else adores this song. I personally do. It's iconic. It's emblematic of the 80s to me. So how about you, Maddie? Your honorable um, mentions. So... I have mentions. The first is Another One Bites the Dust by Queen because I feel like my relationship to Queen, Eric, is the same as your relationship to, Ra uh, not to, to ABBA. Um, mm. I just, I love Queen so much and I would feel like I had failed myself if I had not mentioned them at some point in this episode. And Another One Bites the Dust is one of their most iconic singles. Fun fact, it actually wasn't supposed to be a single off of their album, uh, but Michael Jackson heard it and encouraged them to make it a single. So that's a fun little six degrees of music trivia. Very nice. And my other honorable mention is once again in the bizarre category because I love anything weird and the 80s is very, very good for weird. Uh, and that would be Rapture by Blondie, which is a combination of like the 50s B-grade sci-fi nostalgia of the 80s with like the slow and nascent rise of very early rap. And it is so bizarre. It's about an alien that attacks a planet, Debbie Harris raps in it. Like, it's just, it is a ride, and you have to listen to it at least once. It is one of the ones my dad played for me when he was trying to impress on me how weird pop music was when he was a kid. Second official Gosh. white person to rap in a song, apparently, Debbie Harry. She's doing mm -hmm. her thing. Yeah, and the first official white woman. Oh, yes. Yeah. That is a fun thing, though, like... Just a tangent, but like, post punk just had a really good relationship with hip hop, and that that was nice to see. But anyway, yeah. And now enough with the '80s. It's time for that wacky time known as '91. The Soviet Union had collapsed, and things were a little bit silly. So how about we start off with one of the 
sillier but very competent ones. Uh, Maddie, your time's now. Your time is here. Aha. Uh-huh. So my pick for 1991 is Groove is in the Heart by D-Light. This was their one really big hit. The 90s in general, uh, if I may quote you on this, Caleb, if you were enough artist, you could sneeze in the 90s and go platinum. So there's a lot more sort of one-hit wonders on this than there might be in other decades where artists had to have a little bit more staying power. I think the 60s might compare now that I'm thinking about the comparisons. But Groove is in the Heart is a house dance sort of track um, that features a bass line sampled from Herbie Hancock. Um, one of the, gosh, I used to know which one of the guys from The Roots is actually in this song, and I can't remember which one. So one of you guys is going to have to help me out. Um, one of it's the Roots just, is in here? Yeah, I think one of the guys from The Roots is in here. Um, let me look it up while you guys are discussing it and I'll pop in with a fact check on myself. Um, but Groove is in the Heart is very bizarre and danceable. It's meant to be played in, it's meant to be played in a club, which it is. It's not like one of the 2000s club bangers we'll get to later, but it's meant to be goofy and fun. And it's got a lot of that like 80s new wave quirkiness to it, which I appreciate. Um, it is also a song that actually uses the word succotash in the lyrics And I can think, as far as I know, it's the only song that does that, which I, you know, it's a weird thing, but I appreciate that they included it. It was like they had a challenge for themselves to see how many weird lines they could throw in. Yeah, I mean, they like reference Horton Hears a Who in there at one point. Gonna groove to Horton Hears a Who. Yeah, it's like so many. I know we were just talking about. Oh my God, I forgot about that line. Yeah, with Blondie, but there's like so many of those in here too. A lot of good one-liners. And like... And that um, feature from Q-Tip as well. It's it's like a, one of those quintessential mm. '90s songs. It has a oh, lot of those. Oh, it's a tribe called um, Quest. I thought it was the Roots. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. Yes. Although I I did look up real quick, uh, and it turns out that Charlie XCX did a cover of "Groove in the Is in the Heart" with a uh, Questlove and Black Thought of the Roots. No way! Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I feel like a bad stan. I don't know this. <laughs> okay, well, I gotta listen to this after we're done recording. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. And uh. A couple other legends who are on here, uh, Bootsy Collins, uh, uh, the guy who's doing the background vocals of Astronomical, and mm. he's just a big funk legend, worked a lot with George Clinton in uh, Parliament Funkadelic, as well as uh, Maceo Parker on saxophone and Fred Weasley on trombone, who worked with George Clinton and also James Brown. So they got like legitimate funk cred on this. Oh, no, yeah, is... it is a very funky song. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. looking at the critical reception section on Wikipedia because I decided to double check the Roots thing, and I'm very glad I did. Um, <laughs> but Ross Grady from The Rice Thresher, and I'm reading this out because I love this quote, said it is one of the creamiest slabs of vinyl ever to come from the house music scene. Creamiest? Hmm. Creamiest slab of vinyl. <laughs> Ugh. Not sure how I feel about that. That's a very visceral way to describe it. But you know, this is one of those songs that it just gets you, makes you want to get up and groove in that way. I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. This song is it, it. You you listen to it, and I mean, you could not dance, but why would you want to? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's definitely one of the early '90s was a very big time for you know like silly dance songs in this vein. Well, usually not quite as retro like. Like, this is definitely a really good example, you know, just the amount of 
care they put into every single piece and how just fresh and free it is. It's a really nice song. And uh, in a year that, honestly, I did an entire retrospective on 1991 in pop music, had a great time. <laughs> mm. Well, we were still transitioning out of the funk of that late 80s, weren't we? Yeah, yep. It was... Ugh. The wall fell. Time now what? <laughs> well, what happens next is uh, we look at some Chinese propaganda from Yeah, while Athens, we're still Georgia. on the mood of silly. Um, I mean, not necessarily super silly, but it kind of came off that way. Um, this is the second single from R.E.M.'s seventh and most commercially successful album, Out of Time. And R.E.M., they started as... Um, a pioneer of the alternative rock sound. Prior to their mainstream success, they had kind of a folk rock, um, quote-unquote college rock, post-punk sound with vividly narrative and sometimes political lyrics. Um, they achieved one mainstream chart hit in 1987 called The One I Love, and after that they signed to Warner Brothers, and they became even more political as they shot to 90s superstardom. Um, let me see here. And you kind of see some of that here on this song, that political sensibility, the Frontman Michael Stipe, who kind of since somewhat disavowed the song, has, he actually developed the song from the phrase shiny happy people holding hands, which was seen on a Chinese propaganda poster issued shortly after the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. Said Stipe, I wouldn't say I'm embarrassed by the song, but it has limited appeal for me since it was just meant to be ironic commentary, kind of not necessarily a toss away song, but not meant to be their signature hit necessarily either. Oh, well. <clears throat> It was one of those songs that just happens to get big and you're like, why did it have to be that one? So, yeah, I mean, I think regardless of all that, this song goes hard. It's uh, kind of jangly. It has a pop rock sound and it is definitely their signature, one of their signature hits. So how do you guys feel about it? I mean, I knew a little bit about R.E.M. going in and like 1991, this is like the grunge era, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. I always, for some reason, think grunge is late 90s. It's kind of like, like getting into that, because Nirvana saw them as influences. Yeah, so going in, I was expecting this to be a lot more, you know, grunge. Uh, and then the sound of it is very... Now that I know it's propaganda, it makes sense that it's borrowing from this sort of, like, late Beatles sort of sound with, like, the twangy guitars and the psychedelic sort of echoey sort of thing. Yes. The song yeah. itself yeah. is very cynical but it doesn't sound cynical which i think is the point <laughs> no like i had to look up like the meaning and the background behind the song to really understand what it was about i just wouldn't have just i wouldn't have thought otherwise the lyrics are very simple yeah i i do like this one i will admit that like structurally it's kind of a mess you know like it goes straight from these very this elegant strings waltz and right into like the big jangly hooks with uh, the singer from the B-52s. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and yeah. Then the just all sort of like... song. Um, she's Kate Pearson from fellow Athens, Georgia band, the B-52s. That's right. And she's the lady on the Love Shack going, the Love Shack is a lit. So that's her. Oh, nice. Good yeah. for her. Every yeah, everything in the song just kind of piles on top of itself. And it's a little, it's a little bit messy, you know, but I do have a soft spot for songs that are just so many hooks and just in a it kind of reminds me of the beatles like i want to hold your hand how it's kind of like not 
necessarily a conventional pop song, but it's just sort of hook after hook after hook mm -hmm. after hook. And it's just, mm -hmm. and yeah, I think the Beatles comparison is very apt, especially with that psychedelia. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, I feel like the if the Beatles song. had written this song, it would be unironic. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, we got their thoughts on the China with a revolution when they're like, if you're going around carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you're never going to get anywhere anyhow. It's like, lame. Fun oh, yeah. fact, I put that song on loop while writing a paper on the Revolutionary War in high school. <laughs> nice. Hey, you got to do what you got to oh, yeah. do. <laughs> Yeah. It is, it is definitely like a song that just it's, it's sort of it, I don't know I don't know like its general vibe is like yeah definitely very satirical and almost like with how bright and poppy it is especially when they start doing the do 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 parts and kind of quite frankly how blunt and stupid the lyrics are they it's it's like, yeah, very effective satire of propaganda, I would say. I mean, like I said, I'm a Charlie XCX stan. If it bangs, that's all I need. I don't need good <laughs> lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm wishing uh, R.E.M. and Devo collaborated, because between Whip It and Be People, we have the makings of a very good satirical propaganda album. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. Dream crossovers aside. <laughs> yeah. Of course, also, anyway. also being very upbeat and happy and a little bit silly, we got Summertime by DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. The other day yes. I was singing along with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme and my mom was like, how do you know this? And it's like, Will Smith is a national treasure. Well, I don't know. But anyway, uh, so DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, two guys from Philly who got big in the mid to late 80s for, you know, being sort of like, the wholesome storytelling rap guys, as opposed to Slick Rick, who makes rap songs about, you know, now delinquents getting killed by police. And uh, they did pretty well in the late 80s. At this point, Will Smith has started playing the Fresh Prince on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and it's getting more popular and definitely moving over more to acting because the mid-90s were not very friendly to Will Smith as far as rap. But uh, this is sort of their last big hurrah in terms of chart success before Will Smith breaks up with Jazzy Jeff and then he comes back at the end of the century but you know it's just a really nice upbeat sort of summer jam that samples Cool in the Gang and has a really nice hook and Will Smith rapping about how back in my day parties were fun you guys stop listening to your CNC music factories and your technotronics yeah what'd you guys think I, I appreciated the cheese of this one honestly <laughs> I mean, it's the groove not... is just so slick. It's it yeah, big Willie style. He he gets jiggy with it, and he does not need to get dirty with it at all. Nope, it's squeaky clean, and I he pulls it off really well. I mean, our other option to discuss a song kind of in this genre slash category would be Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, yes. which I find fascinating that we had not one but two actors trying to do rap, or rather. Rappers trying to act. I'm not sure which way the pipeline flows here, but the fact that there are two of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we not went sure. back and forth between this one and Good Vibrations too, as far as discussion mm -hmm. went. So kind of similar vibe there. Yeah. yeah. I know Will Smith started rapping, and then he only actually 
He mostly took on the Fresh Prince, which was the start of it for him because he was behind on his taxes. Oof. <laughs> yeah. yeah. IRS gets you in the end. Yeah. Ain't that yeah. just the way. Yeah. But yeah, this is a really nice one, especially like there's a lot of good to it, like the girl singing about, you know, summertime, 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 and like the cool in the gang sort of octave jump synth. My favorite personal mm-hmm. part is the guys in the background going like sometimes oh, oh, like that little repeating vocal hook. Yes. That was a really good touch. Yeah. Weird to listen to this one in the middle of winter, by the way. Yeah. Honestly, is it though? Because it's an entire thing about nostalgia about the summer. Actually the I mean, last two summers enough. have been kind of bad. I feel like so I just didn't have cool enough summers. In California? Not cool in the sense of um, having the sort of experiences that would make me nostalgic via a song like this. Not cool in terms of temperature. <laughs> oh, I gotcha. Gotcha. Coolest thing I did was go down to Oceanside with my buddies once a week, and that was in 10th grade. Oceanside is nice. And speaking of CNC Music Factory, because we were talking about that a little bit earlier, um, let's go to a hit that they produced by Mariah Carey, um, who at the time was one of the rising stars of the 90s. Um, Emotions, this is the title track and lead single from Mariah's second studio album of the same name, produced and co-written by CNC Music Factory. Um, Mariah was coming off the smash success of her self-titled debut album, all of whose singles topped the Hot 100. And so this new album evolved her musical direction, gave her more creative control in her output, so she started to explore more house and dance musics and gospel styles, not heard on the first album. And so you kind of see both of those coming together here it's a very clean sounding up-tempo disco track which should, it's not the music isn't necessarily the focus here though it showcases her high registers including her whistle tones apparently she spans over four octaves on the song from c3 to e7 that um Ooh. high whistle note at the very end of the bridge that's an e7 so <laughs> i can't even imagine but for those of you who don't know what an E7 is, that's higher than the notes on the piano, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't quite go up that high. That's true. Um, yeah, this, this was a pretty big chart hit as well at the time. This was her fifth consecutive number one on the Hot 100. And she's the first, she remains the first and only artist to have her first five singles all hit number one. Um, was also nominated yeah. for the Best Female Vocal Pop Performance in 1992, but she lost to Bonnie Wright, I think. And she was, yeah, Mariah was basically just on a meteoric rise to the top at this point. She was the main pop girl of the moment, the early 90s. So, yeah, I was completely wild the first time I heard this song. What do you guys think? I mean, Mariah Carey is just a superhuman vocalist. Her agility, her range... All of those riffs that she's able to pull off. Riffs are not as easy as she makes them sound. And the fact that she has been able to sustain her voice and her power for as long as she has is equally incredible. Because so many of these vocalists, especially the ones with the really high ranges, have a bad habit of being poorly trained and they just burn themselves out. But Mariah's gone the distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, I mean, she's still growing yeah, in live performances. Yeah. Yeah, I do definitely love this one just for the sheer awesomeness of her vocals because, like, she has just such good control of her voice, like, every note on point. Oh, and all, yeah. And also, I got to admit, the, the beat is really fun. Like, it's got, it's the, uh, you know, it's sort of house 
but it's also extremely disco because I I know I said that the music wasn't the focus, but no, it totally bangs. I agree. There was a controversy. Um, this song, uh, the songwriter for the song, Maurice White, the best, who wrote the Emotions Best of My Love, sued Mariah and CNC for plagiarizing his song. He said, sampling is one thing, but she took the whole song, and the lawsuit was allegedly settled out of court. So, yeah, it, it kind of uses the same chord progressions and some of the same uh, bits of the melody, but it, so if you kind of compare the songs. But... Yeah, and has a, she, this, it, this wouldn't be the last time that she would um, sample a song unauthorized. There was some other time. I think it was in, like, in the 2000s when she got some sort of controversy over that. Yeah, anyway, I that's mean, what that was all about. I mean, these days she's on, a millionaire just from all I want for Christmas is you, so. Exactly. That just pays her bills. That just pays her bills every single year. And we're going to um, talk a little bit later about how um, 2021 was the first year that song ended up on the year-end chart. I will also Spoilers. say, before we move on from Mariah, because I'm kind of like the technique geek here when it comes to vocalist stuff. Um, I am an alto. I'm not a soprano like Mariah. I can fake it if I have to. Um, in all my years of taking voice lessons, I have gotten into my whistle tones once, and I do mean once, not like once and then I was able to replicate it. No, it was once during warm-ups and I haven't done it since. <laughs> so the fact that she's able to just go up there seemingly at a moment's notice is insane. Hearing it makes me cringe, like, but in a good way. Like, it's just crazy that she can hit that, but I personally, like, try, the, trying to um, visual, just feel how it would be to do that. I, I couldn't even imagine how it would be to do whistle tones. It's just, it feels, it sounds like it would be painful to do. It's not if, if you do them trained. right. Hence why I've yeah, only exactly. hit that once. Right, right. If it makes you feel any better, that's how I feel about hearing a guy hit falsetto because girls don't really get to hit falsetto. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And also I haven't hit whistle tones either. Yeah, me neither. But I'm still waiting on it. In case there was doubt. If you're wondering, I remember it feeling very... It didn't feel strained. It just felt like you were going so high you couldn't get... Not necessarily like full power, like you're still breathing and everything just like you would before. But the sounds coming out, because it's a whistle, feels less full. Right. Mm -hmm. like, so there's your... Like but that makes yes. sense. It's There's like right me trying to describe in. how it felt. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Shall we uh, move to honorable mentions? I would say so. Sure thing. What do you guys have? Uh, for some general honorable... Oh, for some general ones, uh, we got Crazy by Seal, From a Distance by Bette Midler, Good Vibrations by Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, Lo and Losing My Religion by R.E.M. Mm -hmm. And, uh... Whoever wants to take some. Well, I feel like as the resident Janet Stan on the podcast, I would be doing a disservice if I didn't mention Love Would Never Do Without You. I think it's one of her most underrated songs. She sings a little duet with herself, and it's a, it, it's a lot of fun. I just encourage more people to listen to it. Love Will Never Do Without You by Janet Jackson. Um, Tom's Diner, the DNA remix by Suzanne Vega. This is one of the more iconic house dance tracks of the 90s, and I think it bangs. It's... A lot of fun. Um, 
And then one that I had to put on the list, I didn't, not necessarily because it was a favorite song of mine, but because I just thought it was interesting. Sodness Part 1 by, I believe it was Enigma. And this is a really odd track. It, it has like this, it, it begins with this Gregorian chant, and then it goes into this house dance track with these sultry French lyrics about the Marquis de Sade, which, I don't know, it caught my attention the first time I listened to it. And I just, I thought it was odd that such a thing could have been a hit in the 90s. And then Right Here, Right Now, finally, by Jesus Jones, which I had to include solely for the shade they threw at Tracy Chapman in the first line of the song. They say, uh, what was it? A woman on the radio talks about revolution, but it's already passed her by. So, you know, Yeesh. the audacity of it all. Thanks. Um, I'll do yeah. my honorable mentions next, if that's okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah, so my honorable mentions are kind of lumped together into a single category there. Um, Baby Baby and Place in This World, uh, Baby Baby by Amy Grant and Place in This World by Michael W. Smith, as well as kind of tangentially From a Distance by Bette Midler. Um, because one of the things I noticed with the 1991 list is there's a lot more of what I would classify as contemporary Christian compared to 81 and 2001 and so on. And um, I don't have much to say about the relative quality of the music itself, except that he is cute. Amy Grant wrote it when she was a new mother for her child, which is sweet. Um, but uh, I, I, what I would like to highlight here is sort of on the music history side, because I like looking at art and the things we create as a lens through, to understand what's important to a group of people at a given time. And um, the fact that there's a lot of contemporary Christian on this list surely doesn't indicate any massive cultural trends that happened in the late 80s that are going to have an outsized effect on politics for the next 40 years. Can't imagine how that would occur. Oh, no, never. <laughs> Props to the VeggieTales version of Baby uh. Baby, though. Oh, absolutely. I grew up listening to the VeggieTales cover, which Amy Grant actually worked with them on. Um, I know it better than I know the actual song. Same with Place in This World. Uh, I hadn't heard the Michael W. Smith version. I only know Junior Asparagus. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> this is a Michael K. Smith, w. Smith free household. Junior Asparagus is our king. All hail our veggie overlords. Ah! Oh, I would well, not put Junior boppy... Asparagus in charge. Are you kidding? I mean, the most boppy thing I grew up listening to was 95.9 uh, The Fish. So, of course, Michael W. Smith is part of my childhood. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure I like heard it and just didn't recognize it. I have that a lot with like 90s and 2000s stuff. It do be like that growing up in a homeschooled household. Yeah, and for my honorable mentions, uh, I have Freedom 90 by George Michael, which is just, you know, a really nice sort of fancy groove with the piano and the choir comes in and George Michael just sort of talking about like his precarious position of fame in the early 90s. That's a really good song. More lyrical than people give it props for. And then Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now by CNC Music Factory and Strike It Up by Black Box, which are both really big house hits of the time, you know, sort of just big and danceable and fun. Both have Martha Walsh of the Weather Girls on being uncredited on vocals. Uh, if you prefer your uh, house a little bit more jock jam, a little bit more in your face energy, you probably want to go for everybody dance now. But if you want something that's, you know, a little bit more layered and compositional, I guess, 
you probably go for Strike It Up, which also has my personal favorite of the like sort of house dance rap verses, because almost all of them are forgettable, but this one is actually decent. And then my last one is I Touch Myself, which is a pleasurable song about uh, pleasure. And yeah. Very enjoyable. Yeah. And that's about all the time that we have on this episode. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode where we get into the 2000s. Gee, I hope they have flying cars there. <laughs> <laughs>